You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I am Luke Freeman. I'm Rebecca Herbst. Hi, this is Sebastian Aguilar, and you're on the Earning Invest Podcast. When I was a student, I thought giving or altruism was passing a buck to the homeless people who littered my college campus. As a young professional, I shifted my intentions to my skill as a doctor in treating the poor and underserved, as well as everybody else, I was changing the lives of my community. And finally, well into middle-aged, I have a maturing donor-advised fund and periodically pick different causes to send money to. All of these are examples of giving all my attempt at altruism. Years later, however, I've come upon a question which I had never bothered to ask myself before. Have I, my actions and dollars, been effective? Rebecca Herbst is currently focusing on volunteering and empowering others. In 2020, she created a personal finance course for beginners that is donation-based, meaning all profits go to charity. Before founding Yield and Spread, she worked for 11 years in the commercial real estate industry. Luke Freeman grew up engaged with campaigns such as the 40-Hour Famine and Make Poverty History. In 2011, he discovered the charity evaluator Give Well, which led him to learn about effective giving, effective altruism, and is now head of Giving What We Can, a worldwide community of effective givers. Sebastian Aguilar is the host of The Fire Belgium Show. He retired at the age of 33. He is a full-time dad, part-time index investor, and financial independence community builder and educator. All this is supported by an impact-driven startup donating to effective charities. Rebecca, Luke, Sebastian, welcome to Earn and Invest. Rebecca, I want to start with you. Is there a natural contradiction between saving and giving? So I think about... As you're building your financial plan, right? You're thinking about all the needs that you have in your life. You're thinking about the rent you have to pay. You're thinking about your healthcare bills. You're thinking about how to plan for your children, their health, their education. So naturally, you want to keep a lot of the money that you earn to help your own family. What most of us don't realize is that without a strong financial plan, we're constantly in that mindset that we have to save, save, save. And we never quite feel like we have enough. But the reality is for most of us in, you know, here in the US per se, do have the ability to save enough money and take care of ourselves. It's just knowing how to do that. So it's really like saving to help yourself 
but then creating enough space to help others, which really shouldn't be that hard as long as we have the financial tools, knowledge, and resources to be able to do that. Sebastian, what came first in your life? This idea of saving and financial independence or this idea of giving and altruism? So for me, I discovered investing and financial independence first, mostly because I was worried about my own pension. I was an expat abroad and didn't have access to government pension. So I had to figure that out first and I discovered financial independence and I became a huge fan. (laughs) I really dove deep into the movement and I learned from all the very famous people that you've had on the podcast, Jordan. And it's only later when I was actually getting close to financial independence, maybe two years before I got there. And I was, I had an idea that it was a few years ahead of me. I actually was wondering, I was worried about what am I going to do after, right? I was really asking the question, okay, but what then? And okay, I get to fire and yes, I can do whatever I want, but what do I do next? And the one thing that has always driven me in my career was having an impact. And I work in climate change and sustainable energy. And I was always trying to get the biggest projects where it would have the, the biggest impact. So I was basically just started doing some research. How can I have the biggest impact? That's when I came across effective altruism. Yeah, I, that was the exact framework that I needed to think about my life and the decisions, um, how to shape my life after fire, basically. Luke, Sebastian just mentioned this term, effective altruism. Can you define what that is for us? Because I think we all want whatever money we can figure out to give, right? We're worried about saving. We're worried about building up our financial future. Hopefully, many of us have bought into this idea of we should also be giving, but how do we have the most impact with that giving? What is effective altruism? Yeah. So as you mentioned, if we only have so much to give, it's really important to go and ask the question, how can I do the most good with that? And that is very simply the question of effective altruism, which is just going, how can I do the most good and taking action on the basis of what you find? So it has developed into both a research field and a community research field of people trying to investigate this question that could look at things like cause prioritization, you know, which causes need your support the most, things like charity evaluation, which charities are going to be best at delivering these high impact programs. As well as things like your know, career advice and what you might do with your career or looking at political advocacy and things like that. So, and then the community is just people taking action on what we find. And also those are the people who are involved in you know, trying to do this research as well. Rebecca, it begs an important question. When in the process of getting our finances in order, do we start thinking about giving? Talk about your own experience and your own financial trajectory when did you start adding in giving into your general financial plan? Okay, so I'll I'll talk about myself first. So I, in terms of learning about financial independence, I'm a, a bit of a curious example because I learned about it very late in the process, probably three to four years before I actually pulled the trigger on retiring early, which is not the story for most people. I had just been a natural saver and I was naturally frugal. And then I met my now partner who introduced this concept to me. And I was like, whoa, this is a way of living. This is a way of life. I had no idea. And very thankfully, I was in a position to be able to to get into gear and make some major life changes. So around the time that I learned about financial independence is actually when I learned about effective giving as well. So Mr. Money Mustache, who most of your listeners probably know of, He recommends the book, The Life You Can Save, written by Peter Singer, 
who is really like an astounding philosopher of our time, who promotes effective giving and having the highest impact in the world. And he's one of the the founding thinkers behind giving what we can as well. And so when I learned about financial independence and giving back, like I'm learning about these concepts at the same time. For me, I hadn't spent years building this financial plan around giving. It came kind of later. So the way that I think about giving is I give both my time and my skills and my money towards effective causes, right? So it's not just giving your money to to good causes. It's also how you can build, how you can like free up some workspace and some resources in your life to be able to give back in other ways. So I personally uh, donate stock. It's the most tax advantage way of giving for me since I'm a low income earner and selling stock and turning into cash and then donating it isn't exactly the most effective way of giving. So me and my husband and our personal plan, we donate stock on a regular basis to a charity called Give Directly. And then in addition, I raise funds sort of indirectly through the work that we do with Yield and Spread. So my financial plan is rooted around how much sort of I have the capacity to give both with my time, skills, and energy. The second way that I would think about building, giving into your financial plan is that you can do it today or you could do it tomorrow. So I think habit formation is really important. So building in some sort of regular giving that you can do today, even if it's $10 a month or $20 a month, helps create that habit today. And then maybe later on, as you're building more wealth, you can give more. So here at Yield and Spread, we created something called the philanthropy calculator. So most of you people and your most of the people listening to this have probably heard of like a fire calculator, right? Where you put in your net worth, you put in how much income you have, and you put in how much you're spending. If you were to say make $80,000 a year and spend $40,000 a year, if you were starting from scratch and you had nothing in your portfolio at all, it would take you 16.6 years to hit FI based on the 4% rule. If you were to say, give back and take a pledge and donate, say, 3% of your income every year, how long would that or what would the impact be to your FI FI timeline? It would only be one year. So you'd go from 16.6 years to 17.6 years. And so over the course of 50 years, you would donate $120,000 towards effective causes. For example, you could save 30 lives by purchasing 60,000 bed nets to prevent those who get sick in malaria-stricken areas. And so this is like the type of ways that I like to think about building, giving into my plan now. Because when you think about giving and the concept of compounding interest, there's a lot more space to give than we think. And taking taking a 3% pledge is actually not as horrific to our FI timeline as we might think it might be. the Your timeline to FI, even if you were to donate, say, 1% of your income to effective causes is really minimal. Sebastian, we've been talking a lot about effective giving and effective causes. And I'm wondering if some types of altruism are more effective than others. I mean, I think this falls in two categories. One is we talk about the difference between giving time versus giving money. That's kind of one of those dichotomies. And the other is how we specifically give and who we give to. Talk about this idea of the different effectiveness of different types of giving. 
So I know a little bit about this, obviously, because I've, I've read a lot. I think Luke is probably in a better position to talk about those details than I am. But basically, just just Luke, correct me if I'm wrong. I guess I'll, I'll, I'll give it a shot. Especially in the giving, I guess you would give the you can give the the giving part of the explanation. But with with the time we spend on specific activities, there are certainly, and this is probably quite intuitive for most people listening. We know that there are certain things we can do with our time that are far more impactful than others. And what the effective altruism community is doing is figuring out what are those things that have not just like twice as much effectiveness on creating impact as others, but you know, 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times more effective impact compared to other activities that could be seen as charitable or philanthropic as well as, or volunteering, right? And so there is certainly a very big difference between the most effective thing you can do without, with your time and almost everything else. And so it, it is important, well, it, for those seeking to have positive impact, because that's not everyone, then it is important to ask the question and do some research to figure out what that could be. And I, I can give my 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 example, or maybe the research I have done was, okay, so I, I was reaching fire and I knew I was I had maybe a year or two to get there. And I was really wondering what to do with my time. And my biggest asset at that point that I knew I could give was my skill set, my abilities, my competences, and my time. And so it was really figuring out well, like, what is the next best thing I can do after I stop working that would have the, the biggest impact. And the Effective Altruism community has amazing coaching and frameworks to help people think about these questions and basically figure out what is for your personal profile, your personal preferences based on your personal competences and interests. Like what can you do that would have you know a significant impact? And then you can you can go through a certain process to f- to test those different ideas. And so I benefited from coaching from 80,000hours.org, which is another organization in the effective algorithm community. And, and I've, I've used their framework to, to test different activities. So I've, I've done some work in AI governance. So that's like trying to shape policy around AI and, and the risk of related to AI. I've done some work around effective altruism, community building. And now I've moved to what I'm doing today, which is building a community around fire in Belgium and introducing the idea of effective altruism to my community gradually. So using the attractiveness of fire to also bring the ideas of effective altruism and using also, I have a little business that helps me fund a bunch of activities and a part of the profits is donated, like help it, like I give that. So that's sort of where, where I landed, mostly not because it's the most effective in the terms of what I could do with eight hours a day, five days a week, but because that's what fits my current situation as a dad, I'm basically a full-time dad. So that's my main thing. And then, you know, with the one, two hours I have per day, I've I've been able to develop this community and this this product and this, this system that helps me give and donate and support the the both communities in a way. <laughs> so that that's that's maybe an example of how you can get to arrive at specific answers, like what's the best I can do with my time? And in my specific case, it's a very specific answer, but you can go through a similar process for giving. And I think Luke is far better positioned <laughs> and knowledgeable than me on this. So, Yeah. So when it comes to charity, you're generally thinking about some kind of outcome that you want to see in the world. You might want to see education improved or you know, life extended or the quality of life improved or you know, a certain risk reduction, like you know, Sebastian was talking about, the risk of you know, AI deployment going poorly. So generally, you have some outcomes in mind and you're thinking about, and that's the effectiveness, is, you know, the effect, what is the effect and how, how good are you at getting that effect? So some things are really measurable, like uh, you know, Rebecca was talking about bed nets. It's really easy to go, okay, we have this huge 
scientific research that says the burden of disease and malaria is like this. And then we have this great research that shows that if they're properly distributed and um, and used, these insecticide-treated bed nets or chemo prevention, you know, they can prevent uh, a lot of cases of malaria. And if you prevent a case of malaria, you know, one in a thousand, you're going to prevent a death. You're going to prevent a lot of suffering in the meantime. And you're also going to do things like improve education and economic opportunities and everything like that. So you kind of might measure many of those different effects and kind of add them up and see, oh, what did it cost me and what did I get? Some things are a bit harder to measure. You might be talking about things like you know, policies, uh, which might have a huge impact, but it's very kind of variable as to how likely they are to get through. But then you might look at things like the track record of the organization, the you know, baseline theory of change and things like that. I kind of There are a few rules of thumb. So one is to look at how big a problem is. Uh, if it's going to affect a lot of lives or affect them by a lot, then there's a good chance that if you're able to solve it, you can have a big impact. Uh, whereas a really, really small problem kind of has a ceiling on how big that impact could be. The other thing is neglectedness. So if a lot of people are working on a problem or funding a problem, it's getting a lot of attention, a lot of the low-hanging fruit are, is likely to be picked. And so you're really hitting like marginal returns at that point. And the other thing is how tractable a problem is. So is it something it can, you know, where you can make progress, where there's a clear path forward? Now, it's hard to get all three of these uh, because ideally those problems that are really big, neglected and tractable have already been, have a lot of people working on them quite quickly. But uh, if you can get a you know, balance between those three, you, you're off to the races in a really good way. And then you might look specifically at things like when it comes to charity, like how good that specific organization is at doing that intervention and do they need more funding and what would they do with that extra dollar and things like that. There are a few other rules of thumb. You find that typically, you know, the, those you can help most are going to be those who already have the least. So if you're in a rich country, the chances are the people immediately around you have lower need um, and it's more expensive to help than those further away. There are you know, a few other rules of thumb you find. Anything that's in the media is likely to already have a lot of attention. <laughs> so, yeah, there, there are a bunch of rules of thumb you find around the way, similar to like the 4% rule in fire, where you're just like, well, if you see this, uh, you, you can do some of the modeling. But once you find that out, it's quite easy to expect to see that around the place. And another thing is just like the sheer distribution, kind of 80-20 of like some things are just very, very effective. And, and most other things are going to be marginal. So, Rebecca, as I hear Luke talk, I'm reminded of this tension, right? So there are frameworks that we can use to talk about the effectiveness of our giving, right? Whether that's the number of people affected, whether that's the number of lives saved. In medicine, we talk about quality adjusted life years. Like There are numerical ways of measuring impact. I want to contrast that to this idea of if you ask a lot of families in America how they give, the parents will say, well, we have this extra bit of money and we go to the kids and ask the kids, well, what's important? What do you want to give to? And the kids say, I love puppies. And so they give whatever few thousand dollars they have to the animal rescue. And so it kind of creates this tension, right? Because the truth of the matter is our money, as much as we might love puppies and animals, right? There are a lot of human beings who could have really significant life changes with the same money. How do we kind of make those decisions versus something that we're passionate about, which might have a smaller impact versus using those same numbers of dollars to something we're not passionate about, like bed nets is not something that people 
traditionally wake up in the middle of the morning and, and are stressed about and think about, like, would our money be better served, even though that's something that's not as of as much interest to us? So I think the example of puppies is an interesting one. <laughs> so in the effective altruism community, oftentimes to illustrate concepts, we bring forth like examples where, where people are being helped and also comparative examples where maybe people can be helped a little bit more effectively. So the classic example is it costs tens of thousands of dollars to in funds to raise a seeing eye dog for someone who's maybe blind. And that person may have trouble getting around the neighborhood, may have difficulty getting to their job, using public transportation. And there's no doubt that a seeing eye dog would really enable someone, say, here in the U.S., to get to their job more easily and become a more active member of society. Conversely, for the same amount of money, you can give hundreds of people their eyesight back with low-cost cataract surgeries. Um, and one is sort of uh, more fun and appealing than the other, right? What's more fun and appealing? A cute little lab that's that's adorable and sweet and has the service jacket that someone's using to help them um, get to A to B? Um, or is it a bunch of uh, low-cost cataract surgeries that are really easy to do and maybe less sexy areas um, that don't come across as well in pictures? And so the effective altruism mindset would say, well, we probably can do more good if we were to give hundreds of people their eyesight back, who would then be able to go from not really able to working or providing their families to really building a life and lifting up their communities. With that said, it's not necessarily the case that one is better than the other. It's just a way to think of it more effectively. Uh, the other thing I'll, I, I do personally sometimes is that if there's something that I'm passionate about, like donating to shelter dogs in my local area, sometimes I'll think about, well, maybe I can match that. So maybe I can put $1 towards this cause that I'm passionate about locally, like my uh, local ski and snow sports adaptive team. I volunteer here with them here in Ogden, Utah. So does Chris Vanula. I know he's also been um, on your show. And, uh, but then I might think, okay, how can I match that? And I might provide another dollar to uh, give directly, for example. For me, I think there's two ways I think about this. One is budgeting and the other is mindset. So the first one is you know, budgeting and going, okay, well, what part of my budget am I trying to use to have as much impact as I can with that money? And for that, I, I go really hard in thinking about that, where that money is going. And so that might be something like, even even going further and budgeting that about you know, whose lives I'm, I'm taking into consideration because I still have a lot of uncertainty as to how to weight, say, humans versus animals or people alive now or people into the future. So I might cut up my donation budget into these buckets and go, okay, within this bucket, I'm going to do as much you know, research as I can to get the most impact that I can get to help people now. This other bucket, I might be trying to help animals as much as I can. And then I'll have some amount, which is most, which I see is discretionary spending. It's like, oh, a friend's, you know, doing a you know, fun run. I want to support the fact that they're being generous. So I'm going to put, you know, this standard amount that I have a pot for, or, you know, budget a certain amount to support the fact that we got our cats from a rescue and we want to support that rescue. We see it as like a service that we're help We're doing our part in contributing to because, you know, we're a beneficiary of, and we're in part of this area. 
kind of in philosophical terms, we see it like as a special obligation that we have, like a parent's obligation to take care of their children and things like that. And then the other is mindset. So when it comes to things like you're speaking with your kids or you're going through this thought process yourself, thinking about why it is that you, you know, might you know, care about puppies and, 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 and what does that mean? So, you know, well, I, you know, I've had cats and dogs and I've done a lot of you know, pet sitting and I grew up on a farm. And for me, it was, I think animals' lives are really rich and important and they, I can see that they have this qualitative experience and they, I've also seen them suffer and I think that's pretty terrible. So it's not that it's specifically dogs or cats that I care about. It's that I think the animals' lives are, are worth caring about too. And so when I really reflect, how do I want to help animals? Well, I go, well, I used to have free range chickens. I had a pretty good life, but I've seen the conditions that hens in, you know, um, in, in really close quarters have, and it's really terrible. It's really, you know, they don't live very good lives. And we've seen that there's a great track record of, you know, lobbying companies and governments to change policies around this. It just improves the lives of chickens a lot. So having those conversations uh, either with yourself or with your children or people in your life and really thinking about what is it that I truly value is not necessarily something specific like that. Similarly, like I was affected by you know, cancer. My, uh, I lost my grandmother to cancer, to breast cancer. And when that happened, I reflected that the loss that I was suffering and seeing her, her suffer in, towards the end of uh, her life, it was, what it was, the things that I was feeling was I didn't like seeing people I care about suffer. I didn't like losing people I cared about. And I knew that that is a really human experience and humans anywhere in the world are going to experience that. And I don't want them to see their loved ones suffer and I don't want them to lose their loved ones. So just broadening it out a bit, when you really look at the values piece, like what is it you really care about? You realize it's often is this kind of higher level thing, which is less of an aesthetic preference or something that's kind of immediately around you, something you've had experience with, but it's a higher level thing of like caring about suffering, caring about, you know, flourishing, caring about, you know, these bonds continuing to exist and things like that. It's an interesting question, Luke, right? Because a lot of people would hear this and they'd hear about your experience with your loved one in breast cancer. And they'd say, well, I give money to breast cancer. But knowing what you know, breast cancer's well-funded research, your money may have greater impact elsewhere, even though you have this personal connection. And that's sometimes hard for people to traverse. I know what you're saying, right? The mindset is, well, really what we're talking about is helping with people with diseases worldwide, not just breast cancer. And you can kind of generalize that and therefore find more effective ways to use money towards those things. But you have to admit it, there's a little tension there. Yeah, there is there is definitely a tension. But once, yeah, once you internalize the fact that it's real, you know, luck of the draw as to what specific things affect you and those around you. But the universal things is, you know, the value of life and that, you know, people, you know, suffer and that is terrible. <laughs> and that, you know, losing your loved ones is a bad thing to go through, especially early. Like my grandmother you know, she at least lived into her 80s. Like, that was amazing. Whereas I couldn't imagine being a parent losing a child before the age of five just because they didn't have a vaccine or something. Like, that would just the whole other level of grief that I fortunately have no empathy for because I haven't been in that situation. So we are talking to Rebecca Herbst, Luke Freeman, and Sebastian Aguilar, and we are talking about effective altruism 
We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. All right, so most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better, and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago, and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor. And it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner, and now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer-focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights, we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave, and two minutes later, we'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing, and there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week. These are chef-prepared meals, and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave, and two minutes later, you have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Let me reintroduce you. We are talking to Rebecca Herbst, who in 2020 created a personal finance course for beginners that is donation-based, meaning all profits go to charity. Luke Freeman, who is now head of Giving What We Can, a worldwide community of effective caregivers, and Sebastian Aguilar, who's the host of the Fire Belgium show. Sebastian, I want to get more to the personal aspects of this. I often talk about this idea of how do we know what enough money is? And I think there are lots of parts of life where we struggle with this concept of enough. How do we know when we're giving enough? 
Oula. <laughs> okay. So the part on how do we know when we have enough, I think is this is the part where the financial independence community is so good at, I think. On the giving enough, I think it's much harder because how much you need to sustain your own life and be happy is something you can actually calculate and estimate and you can put a number on. But saying like how much how, how much am I giving and is that enough? Well, the truth is there's a lot of these initiatives and charities and causes that require so much more funding than what we have that it doesn't really, I don't know if there's enough there. I think it's more of a question of is, how comfortable am I with this amount of giving and does that suit what I want to do and does that allow me to do everything else I want to do in my life? Because obviously we don't want this giving to be basically a, a major discomfort in life it doesn't have to you don't you don't so i mean there's obviously in the effective altruism community there's there's a wide range of individuals with a wide range of choices of how much they give as a percentage to their of their income for example um, but i can give my own personal ex- example i i live from my portfolio of index in, in index funds and so far we we haven't given from that personal net worth right so this i'm saying we because it's me and my wife and we both have slightly different perspectives on what is it that we think is enough for our own lives. So I would be satisfied with less, which means I am inclined to be giving more from that perspective, simply because I can take more risks and I I don't mind if we take, you know, we take a little bit of a risky approach to fire. So from our personal giving, we haven't done much. We have given, but just sporadically here and there. Now, what I have developed is a way of giving through my activity to my professional activity, which as I said earlier, is just a few hours a a day, but that allows me to donate. And there I still had to make a decision. And it's it's probably one of the differences between what Rebecca does and what I do is I don't give a hundred percent of profits, right? So there's still a part of me that's like, hey, I'm building a business. Uh, Part of it goes to charity, but not all of it. There's several reasons for that. One is I don't know if this this business is going to run. So (laughs) I kind of want to keep the profit so that I can I have some savings and I can keep running the thing, even if it doesn't make profit over several years. Part of me is also saying, hey, I'm doing a lot of work here. I'm taking time away from my family in a way. I'd like some of that to remain ours too, right? So I do have to make that that choice. And I think what the giving what we can pledge helped me do is basically set a number. And the giving what we can pledge, the base one is 10%. And so here I've said 10% of profit from this business goes to effective giving. And the fact that it was pre, like pre, the number was already set as that's the default pledge was much easier for me to basically commit to it. If I didn't have that number, I think I'd be struggling (laughs) to be honest. I'd be struggling to decide how much. So how much is enough? I think giving what we can here helps us decide and then we can change later, right? So the intention here is 10%, and I'm I'm intending to increase that over time if if and when the business actually <laughs> becomes bigger. Um, certainly that's the that's the intention. Yeah. So that that's maybe my take on how much is enough in terms of giving. And I'll second that. So when I first started thinking of my giving plan, I was trying to think of it in a way that Sebastian mentioned, like what is enough? So I first went out on this path of trying to give and match what I spent. So I said to myself, I am going to make donations that match 25% of my expenditures each year because I didn't earn this traditional income. So I wasn't able to say, okay, let me give 10% of my $100,000 salary a year. Well, what happened was that giving strategy was a little stressful (laughs) for me. Every dollar that I spent 
then I was thinking about, should I match that? Maybe if I didn't spend enough that year, then I was thinking about, well, I'm not actually donating enough. And so that strategy that I came up with on my own, frankly, didn't work that well after year one. So I'm also giving what we can pledge member and something that's clean, like 10%, or if you're not quite at 10%, there's also other pledges out there, like one for the world where you pledge 1% of your income, which is much more doable and feasible for many people. It takes the guessing, the guesswork out of it. And it's just something to work towards. And you can kind of think of it as just another thing that you need to plan for. Um, and it takes the the personal stress out of asking the question, am I doing enough? I've also found that like standards work really well. It, it is an impossible question you've got to try and figure out on your own often. You've got zero at one end, give nothing. And that obviously has no impact on the world through your finances other than what you're purchasing. And then the other extreme is, might be you know, giving everything you possibly can, which that doesn't turn out very well. <laughs> you know, there was one example of a man named uh, named George Price who you know had a epiphany that he you know he he had you know more than he needed, and that you know there were many people who were worse off than him, and he gave basically to the point where he was oh you know it would be as poor as the next person, and it, uh, sadly you know. He committed suicide, you know, had a very terrible life. So you kind of don't want to go to either of these extremes. So what do you you do? And then I think that there's a few ways of framing it. So giving what we can, two of our founders when we started, initially we're thinking of the idea of giving what you don't need, of like going, okay, here's what I'm going to live on and to give above that. And so they're like, okay, I know what I need to meet my needs. I'm going to set a, like an amount and then change that with inflation as time goes on. And then that's what they've done. And they called that the further pledge because, you know, many people came back to them and said, yeah, that's a bit hard for people to calculate. And uh, it's quite a lot. People do like, you know, the income increasing over time. And so then they went and looked, well, there were already standards out there, like within, you know, Judeo-Christian uh, Judeo circles, you got things like a tithe, which is 10%. And within you know, Islamic circles, there's things like Zakat, which is 2.5% uh, of wealth each year. And it's kind of going, okay, well, these things exist. They, you know, have seemed to have last, lasted the you know, test of time. So, you know, giving what we can pledge is adopted the 10%. It's also often a similar sales tax price. It's like, so, you know, five or 10 times more than many people might give, but, you know, much, much less than amount that would be detrimental for a lot of people. And then, yeah, you can give what an average person gives, which might be, you know, two to 6% of income, or, you know, like Rebecca said, just give what you wouldn't miss, which might be something around like the 1% level. Generally deciding and sticking to something for a while and making that a decision which you just review on a semi-regular basis but aren't constantly having to decide, I think makes a big difference. Just like without budgeting other things, it just takes the decision fatigue away and you know that other people are doing it too. So you know, can't be that you know, <laughs> unreasonable. <laughs> Sebastian, I know it sounds like an obvious question, but I feel like we have to ask it anyway. You know, is there an, a moral imperative to give in the first place? I mean, I'm thinking about a lot of people who I know from the financial independence community or a lot of people in the personal finance world in general, and they're thinking any extra dollar I want to use to make a legacy build for my children, right? So they're thinking about saving money for their children, saving money for their family members. Is that a wrong way of thinking? Or should we be thinking more about how to change the world in general as opposed to those people closest to us? 
Yeah, I think this is a very important question. And it's one that I'm at the moment also challenging in my own family. <laughs> it's quite interesting. I think it's a very important question. And I would say it's worth considering challenging this this way of thinking that I think comes simply because of our cultural norms of inheritance and the way things are structured around us. Uh, it, it, I think it's important challenging for, for two reasons. One is money has more value to us in the present than it will have in the future. And it's the same for our descendants. So just on the question of inheritance, trying to say for our kids, this is not about donating that necessarily, but it's about the fact that if we were to give to our kids earlier, they would benefit from it more. Typically, if I was to live until I'm 19, I give to my kids, they'll be 60. They don't care about getting 50 or 100,000 euros. Whereas if they get it, if they get half of that 30 years earlier, that's a lot more money. and It has a much bigger impact for them. Now, that's the same for giving. I think a lot of people put giving in their wills as well. And so that's not a bad thing, right, per se. But giving something similar or percentage or something earlier would probably have a bigger impact. Now, there's studies around this in the philanthropic world, but my understanding is that giving earlier has a bigger impact than the same money invested for a long time and giving it later. There's also benefits to that, the second part, the second aspect of ski. And I think another aspect of all this is, um, is to me, yes, we have a society where the, the, the default way is we save and we keep it for, for our descendants and our kids and maybe some donation in the future. But there's something that people don't realize, I would say, is there is something fulfilling about giving. And often people get that from volunteering because donating time seems to be something that is kind of a resource that we we think we have more than we have money, which is, I find it strange to think it that way. But so people tend to volunteer because they get direct feedback. It gives them a positive response, which gives them basically fulfillment in general in life. And I think you can get something similar or you don't really have to work on the emotional side of things, but you can you can also donate not only through time, but also through money and, and get fulfillment from it. And I, I know there's there's an emotional connection that's not always there when we donate to causes that are far away from us, but that's something that's being worked on, I think. And if if we could solve that, I think it would make those those donations easier. It would become more part of what people are willing to do. It has to be built into the status of that people have also. I think donors, although they don't want to brag about donating, they should feel proud <laughs> in a way. Uh, I don't know. There's, there's there's so many questions and sub questions to this to this very very important topic. But these are these are my initial thoughts. I would say. I don't think it has to be an either or. I think when we talk about charity, we think about these things as a mutually exclusive concept. Like, do I keep for myself or do I give to others? We can do both. So, if you are part of the fire community and you are building this nest egg to live upon. And at some point you retire, ideally you're not withdrawing completely down on that NASDAQ, right? You'll have some money left over to give to your family or to give away. So for example, my husband and I have committed to donating 80% of our net worth to charity upon our death. That leaves 20% still for our family members. And so it's, it's not that dissimilar to having a 401k and designating your beneficiaries, right? Like, are you choosing your brother? Are you choosing your sister? Are you choosing this child, that child? Like, hopefully you're giving your children equal amounts, but you know, it's it's a different experience for everyone. And so I think the same goes when we think about splitting, if you will, our assets in, in our upon our death. And I just want to throw out a free resource to users. We used a resource called Freewell, 
which easily helps with estate planning for free if you're looking to build and giving upon your and giving in your estate planning. I think that part of it's also a bit of a scarcity mindset, which is much more likely to happen if you don't have a good understanding of what your finances are. And that was actually a big thing for me when I first started giving after, like, I I was giving a small amount uh, ever since I had any income at all from a paper run or selling my chicken eggs. (laughs) (laughs) But it was when, after the global financial crisis, I had a very low-paying entry-level job and my wife didn't have working rights in Australia yet. And we were basically living living off ramen in a big share house, you know, and then she got a job and I got a promotion. And... It's at that point that I was like aware of things like the hedonic treadmill. And I was like, okay, I'm going to start giving now as my income is starting to increase. And it was giving you a significant portion. It was a lot easier uh, when I had an idea of actually where my finances were going. Because also to start with, it was very little. But as I started to increase my spending, keeping a good idea of where my finances are and what I actually needed and, and thinking about the purchases that I actually made and which things really gave me value. And like tied into what I saw as, you know, my purpose here on earth, like to have, you know, live a good life myself, to have friends, family, hobbies and things like that, but also to leave a legacy for others as part of that purpose. And so once it was viewed through that lens, it was just like, well, which parts of my budget are going to help me achieve that purpose in life? And, you know, then it was much less about scarcity for later. And I've, you know, at that same time, ended up saving way more than I was expecting because as soon as I started to really think about where my money was going, I realized a lot of things weren't bringing me the value that I thought. <laughs> and the other thing is parenting. You mentioned that the one thing that's really valuable for me is from a young age, you know, parents uh, having those conversations around, you know, people outside of our family being, you know, lives that are worth considering our impact on them. And I think that if you're someone who has kids actually demonstrating to them that they you love them a lot and that you care about their well-being but you don't necessarily want to spoil them you want to make sure they're kind of ready uh, st- you're standing on a, a solid ground and ready to move forward but you you're trying to teach them and and live uh, a life to them that shows that the world is much bigger and they can be a big part of that and they can they can improve the world around them that when they w- walk past you know suffering that they're not just going to kind of turn a blind eye and try and harden their soul, but they you know, have compassion and, and that's a good thing. So at the risk of getting the same answer for all three from all three of you, I'm going to ask you all the same question. I want to be a little more tactical here because people have been listening and we're talking about giving, we're talking about effective altruism, having the biggest impact on your dollars. So I'm going to run through each of you, but I'm going to start with Sebastian. What is the easiest resource to make sure your dollars go the furthest when you're talking about giving? Where do you go if you want to make sure that you are effectively donating? I go to givewell.org, which is the organization that has done, it's an organization that has done a lot of research on the impact of philanthropy donations. Yeah, I think that's the main resource, but there, I mean, there's a lot of work done in other places, but that's the one where I go to. Rebecca, givewell.org, are there other resources you sometimes look at when you're trying to figure out where to put your dollars? So a similar resource is The Life You Can Save, which is also a charity aggregator. It's inspired by GiveWell, but they also use other research metrics to put forth the charities that they think they, that have the biggest impact. They also have a The Life You Can Save audiobook on their website. It's a free download as an ebook. 
And it's also freely narrated by celebrities like Kristen Bell. It's awesome. I highly recommend it. Luke, I'm going to give you the chance to also tell us where you would go if you were looking to be most effective in your donations, but also talk to us about how effective most charities are. Because, you know, I've heard like with GiveWell and all those places that there actually are not a huge number of charities that they suggest comparatively because it's a small number that actually are more effective than the rest. Yeah. So on that point, when you look into it in most fields, you're going to find a really, really skewed distribution. Often the top, you know, the top ones are about 100 times more impactful than the, the median, and the median is about 100 times more impactful than the bottom. And then you go below zero when you're having negative impact per dollar, which sadly happens, happens. more than you realize. <laughs> but so these distributions exist all over the place. So if you're able to find just a few things that are really outstanding and can absorb a lot of funding, then you really want to fill them until the point at which they don't need as much funding. And sadly, like the great news is we found some really, really impactful things. The sad news is we're still not funding them. <laughs> so sometimes people, uh, you know, uh, say, well, it's it's crazy uh, giving what we can and give well have had a charity like Against Malaria Foundation uh, on its top list for over a decade. And that's because we still haven't fully funded one of the most impactful interventions that's still like the marginal dollars, is each additional dollar is still having almost as much impact as some of the first dollars going in in any given year, just because they're the problem that is so big that we are making progress on. Like you look at the rates of death and cases of malaria and everything, it's, it has been dropping significantly and in a very, you know, no small part due to the you know, large number of people that have suddenly shifted their giving to actually focus on this thing is still quite neglected. That being said, at Giving What We Can, we work with multiple charity evaluators and grant makers in this space. So with GiveWell, as mentioned, The Life You Can Save, Animal Charity Evaluators, Founders Pledge, Longview Philanthropy, looking at across different worldviews whose lives you're considering. So you might be looking at trying to improve the future, Sebastian was talking about things like AI governance, which might be affecting that, or you're trying to improve the lives of animals, as we we're talking about before, as well as helping people now. So we have collated recommendations across these different cause areas um, at our best charities page at givingwhatwecan.org and some guidance for how you might navigate those decisions. Well, Rebecca, Luke, Sebastian, I wanted to thank you for coming on today. Strangely enough, I look at giving almost in the same way I look at investing. Like you have extra money around, you know, you want to invest, but they're good ways to invest, bad ways to invest, ways you can invest that have the greatest impact on your net worth and well-being in the future and ways that are honestly just throwing away money. I think a lot of us don't realize that giving is the exact same way. When you have extra money around, there are ways to do it really effectively where your money goes far and has the greatest impact. And then there are ways to do it that just don't change that many lives. You've helped elucidated this idea today and given us some information about how we can make our dollars go the farthest. I want to end this episode the way and every episode by asking you how people can get in touch with you if you want to learn more. Luke Freeman, tell us if people want to ask you questions or get more involved, how can they reach out to you? Yeah, so check out givingwhatwecan.org. We have a bunch of resources and information there. And uh, yeah, you can also get in contact with me on the contact page there as well. Sebastian Aguilar, tell us what is going on with you. And specifically, if people have more questions, how can they reach out to you? 
So I actually have written a lot about this a few years ago on a blog called impactivated.com, which is still up. I'm not updating, but there's a lot of my research on the intersection between fire and effective altruism in terms of yeah, how we can make the most impact. Something I wanted to add to what you said earlier is financial independence is basically the optimization of money for personal fulfillment. And usually that comes with freedom and more time. And effective altruism and especially effective giving would be the optimization of of money for global impact. So it's extremely similar. There's so many overlapping themes because it's research, it's evidence-based, research-based, it's numbers, it's optimization. It's it's perfect for nerds. <laughs> All it takes is just uh, going beyond just thinking for oneself and realizing that there's so much more we can do. And, and the last piece I wanted to say about this is financial independence really is an incredible superpower, and not only for our own personal life, but because of what we can do with it, right? We we free up an, an incredible amount of, of resources, which is time, money, but also our competence, our skill set, our capacity to think outside the corporate box where we kind of have to, we have to say the things that are expected of us, otherwise we might lose our job, our clients, or whatever. Like we we have this ability to go beyond what most people in in regular life can can do, and we have the resources. And like I invite everyone who is in the financial business community or on the way or already there. To think about this because it's a gift and and you can you decide what you do with that gift um, but it has tremendous power for others and so that's that's my 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 my, my invitation for anyone listening and then where you can find me yes impactivator.com is where i wrote about this a while ago but mostly i'm active under fire belgium and that would be anywhere if you type fire belgium you'll find me and rebecca herbst tell people about how people can access your philanthropy calculators and specifically if they have questions for you how can they reach out to you yeah, so you can visit our website at yieldandspread.org. Definitely check out our philanthropy calculator on our free resources page and see the impact you could have if you were to take a giving pledge. Even if you just plugged in a 1% donation pledge and see what it means for you, I, I promise most of you will be surprised at the impact you can make with pretty low effort. We also offer free one-to-one coaching for members of the FIRE community who are exploring, incorporating, donating into their financial plan. And we have an application form on our website. So please check it out there. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. And behalf of myself, I'd like to thank Rebecca Herbst, Luke Freeman, and Sebastian Aguilar. That's a wrap. Earn and Invest is now part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to this show as well as other fine podcasts. All right. I leave things running just so we can catch any of our after show um, chatter. That was a lot of fun. I, I think it's like Sebastian and I, we did this conversation three, three and a half years ago and Rebecca, I'm really glad you you recontacted me because I think it was time we had the conversation again. Um, we've been through a lot in three and a half years. We've been through COVID. We've been through changes politically, socioeconomically. You know, we, we go through things like the huge, you know, SWB bank crashing, right, <laughs> over the weekend. All these things Crazy. changing in our lives. And yet our ability to impact and affect people not just around us but globally is still there if we choose to try and i think this episode as well as your guys message drives that back home especially when we have the boon of understanding our finances and maybe reaching towards financial independence
Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I really appreciate that you spend so much time exposing these subcultures of the fire community, because I think we all have our, our mentors, the people who inspire us. And so I, I view this as like another avenue that could be a growing subculture which within the fire community of people who are, are looking to give back. And like one sort of call to action, one thing that I would like to see is more tax accountants and financial planners who are active in this space, who are, you know, fee-based fiduciaries who want to help people know how to learn how to give back in an easy and effective and tax advantaged way. So I, I, you know, I think not just people growing and reaching financial, financial independence, but the people who are also helping people reach financial yeah, independence. Yeah, for sure. Hmm. I think there's space for, for some kind of, I mean, there is already, uh, I think, uh, a community on, on Slack, no, Rebecca, but there's certainly space for, um, there's something that actually I started a long time ago, which was this FI for impact Facebook group. There's a bunch of Facebook groups around different subcultures yeah. in, in the fire movement and probably subreddits and things like this. So there's, there's certainly space for that connection between fire and effective altruism yeah. or fire and effective giving. Cause it doesn't have to be the whole effective altruism thing. It could be yeah. just the philanthropic yeah. side of fire yeah. where you would probably catch, catch, <laughs> have more interest from people who are not necessarily into EA with effective altruism, um, but that would be an interesting place to talk about the concepts to people who maybe already have yeah. philanthropy in their uh, in their budget for for fire. So I think there's, there's there's many places where the fire community can learn, evolve, and develop, and find what suits them. So you know, one thing that's find amazing, Jordan, is that you're doing this because, to be honest, the main often the main obstacle to people adopting this is just they're not aware it exists. But all they're waiting for is to find out. Like that was me with fire and that was me mm -hmm. with effective altruism. The moment I Googled the right thing and I found, you know, Mr. Money Mustache and Jill Collins' blog, I was like mind blown. I was like, this is my tribe. Yeah, <laughs> Finally, yeah, I found sure. you guys. This is what I need. This is this is how I do it. That's it. This is let's go, right? And the same happened the second time with effective altruism. I was like Googling, okay, how can I have an impact? And I was going through blogs and articles and YouTube videos. And, and then at some point I was like, that's it. This where has this been all this time? Like, why is this not so, something that's taught everywhere? Like, everybody should know that. Yes, you sh you can take care of your finances and completely transform the way you live your life because you are in control and not whatever blueprint society gives you. And then the same thing about, you know, philanthropy giving and sort of the meaning of life and the impact you can have. Like, those things are such incredible concepts and they're just missing in most people's just life awareness. And then, like... That, that that first step is amazing and crucial. And so thanks for that, Jordan. Yeah, yeah. Appreciate it. No, no, my pleasure. And you know, what's really cool about effective altruism. If you're into giving and you're part of the financial independence community, I don't understand how you'd want to give except through effective altruism, because we love our spreadsheets and our numbers. We, we want to put our money in the safest index fund that also returns the greatest returns long-term. So to me, again, that lines up with effective altruism. We want to be able to take our dollars and have it go the farthest. So if you really are interested in financial independence, you're not going to be interested in just any giving. You are a spreadsheet nerd who wants to get into effective <laughs> altruism because it truly is. It's numbers, right? It's 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 using those calculations. When so. I was when I was doing some research on that topic on the main fire Facebook groups a long time ago, most mm -hmm. people like there's a lot of people donating. 
actually. Um, but most are donating either to the local radio or the local church, like yeah. you know, in, in the American yeah. groups. And then a few are donating to other local charities. But so donating is part of the culture, a lot more actually in the US than it is here in Europe. So that's one thing. No, we didn't talk about that. But here in Belgium, people donate to charities. Like that's not even a topic. Like with friends and family mm. and relatives and school, nothing ever. Very few people go actually to church as much as in the US, right? So I think in the US, you have a much more, much stronger um, culture of, of donating here is still very new. So when I come with those effective giving ideas, it's like, it's like a double blast. It's like, <laughs> why are you talking to us about giving if I thought you were here to help us reach financial independence? Mm -hmm. and so it's like that double message, which it's eventually that's why I want to go. I want to, you know, I want to take yeah. the whole community towards effective altruism gradually. Um, but I know it's, um, it's an interesting, like it, there's an extra challenge because of the how society works here and what's the usual culture around donating is not very, not very developed. <laughs> and it is complicated. Like I, on one hand, it's like a two-sided coin. On one side of the coin, it's like this complete point of friction to, you know, Jordan's first qu question to me, like, how do you save and give and don't these concepts Perfect conflict first question, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. And then the second side of the coin is like, it makes total sense though. And mm -hmm. so like when I think about the brand yield and spread, like it's this complicated concept to explain the twofold mission of, hey, I'm trying to help provide low cost, high quality education to people yield. And mm -hmm. let's talk about how we can use finance as a superpower for doing good spread. And I think to some people that will be inherently conflicting, right? If you're on the hamster wheel, in the rat race, trying to get yours, that will not seem to make a lot of sense. But if you're getting closer and closer to your fire number and have a better understanding of like what you need to live a happy life, it's pretty natural to understand building this like legacy and giving into your financial plan. So I think some, I think this will resonate with some people very easily and with others, depending on their relationship with money and, and giving away, it will be a, a real point of friction, but that's not a bad thing. It's just, it's just something to explore. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambie Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. <laughs> Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. <laughs>